todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest is Nick Broomfield, the director of The Stones and Brian Jones, a new documentary that chronicles the ill-fated guitarist's short life and brilliant career. Nick has also directed films about Leonard Cohen and Kurt Cobain, plus true crime documentaries such as The Grim Sleeper and one on Eileen Warnos, and I've seen them all. I want to ask Nick about his unusual approach to this subject, as well as how he worked with Bill Wyman to help bring the visuals to life. So let's bring him up. Hi, Nick. Hi. I have a book series called Rock and Roll Nightmares, and then this podcast is a spinoff of it. And I love to put the spotlight on books and documentaries that I enjoy. And I really loved The Stones and Brian Jones. Great. I'm, I'm delighted. So um, one of your previous documentaries is My Father and Me, um, which is about you and your father. Um, But you also focus on that relationship between Brian and his father in this documentary. Hmm. So, yeah, what is it about that that you believe shaped him into who he was, both as a father himself and a musician? Well, I think, you know, all of us, whether, whether you're a rock star or not, are very influenced by how you've you know, your seminal years and uh, what kind of relationship. I mean, I think everybody wants their parents' approval, no matter how famous they become. Uh, and Brian was very much a part of that. He he wanted his parents' approval. And it, in a way, was hardest for him out of all the other members of the band because he came from a very kind of middle-class family. His father was... a jet engine you know designer so he was a scientist and a mathematician you know very very educated and wanted brian to have a job in the profession so barrister solicitor kind of that kind of you know a doctor and was horrified really when he started a blues band and he, you know i think his parents regarded the blues 
as a degraded form of music. Hmm. So, um, you know, he was up against a lot of um, uh, disapproval, which was difficult for him. And I think he, you know, despite the fact that he founded the Stones and was kind of initially the leader of the Stones, they never came to support him, came to his concerts and that kind of thing. And I think although... Um, you would expect him to be able to just shrug it off. He, he obviously didn't. And in the film, there's a number of letters that I managed to find between him and his parents and his parents and him. And, and you really feel that in these, in these letters. Yeah, I really did enjoy that intimate and pretty much unforeseen glimpse um, into Brian's mind and heart through those personal letters that you shared in the film. I'm wondering, how did you get access to those and what else can fans expect to see or hear that may be rare or never before revealed in the stones and brian jones well i wasn't expecting this at all when i went into it i was thinking of doing a much more straightforward standard kind of film um but i was I, you know there were these incredible recordings too that i found that alexis corner who was the guy who actually in England brought a lot of the blues artists over. Um, he had a club and a band of his own. And he then did some interviews um, in the 60s, including interviews with Brian's father and the other members of the Stones as well. Everybody loved Alexis Corner. So he got amazing interviews with, you know, Mick and Keith, as well as Brian and Brian's father. And it was, you know, Brian's father was kind of fascinating the way he talked. He was so articulate and precise. You got a real sense of, you know, so I, I found all that sort of subtext very interesting. Also, I wanted to do a portrait that was not just from the sort of bandmates point of view, but from the women that he was involved with. You know, he was involved with he, his parents actually kicked him out at the age of 17. And he then spent the next few years, really, until he died at twenty nine, at twenty seven, living with one family or another. He would meet the the you know his girlfriend, and then would go and live with the parents. And the mothers would kind of mother Brian and iron his shirts and make his favorite food for him. And um, he was he kind of spent a lot of his life kind of looking for a substitute family. He would then get the daughters pregnant. <laughs> right. And and have to leave rapidly. So he ended up with about five or six kids in a very short space of time. And uh, so I spoke to these, you know, to the, to the women who he was very involved with, who um, were surprisingly, amazingly loving towards him. Because I think, you know, he'd caused them a, a lot of pain at the time. Uh, but I think that they provided an insight into not only the world of rock and roll and uh, what it was like at that time, being on the road with him and that sort of thing, uh, but also a kind of very unexpectedly sort of perceptive view of him, which, again, I wasn't really expecting. Yeah, that was a different angle. Um, and also you have Bill Wyman's recollections and um, his collections. So it's integral. So how did you connect with him in the first place? 
Um, Bill was somebody that um, we approached. Um, he was he was kind of known as the archivist of the stones, and he kept a diary of every single day that he spent with with them. So uh, when you meet him, there's you know in, in his library there are all these beautifully bound books of his diaries. Uh, so he was an amazing resource. And um, I, I think, you know, filming him was really a delight because you, you know, I've always thought of him as being a rather sort of retiring, unemotional person. But when he was talking about their music, he has such passion. And, you know, it's obviously he's 80 now. Yeah. But, you know, he his whole face lights up when he's talking and, and there's such enthusiasm and such love for the music and what they did. Uh, you, you get a real sense of, you know, why he did it and why it was so special. Even people who love rock music and uh, British invasion stuff, I think they'll learn a lot through your documentary, but I'm wondering if there's something that you yourself learned in the course of making the film. It's a, it's a, you know, the film is really, based in the 60s, because the mm -hmm. stars were formed in 62. Brian died in 69. Um, and it was, you know, it was a it was a kind of very experimental kind of Wild West time. And I forgot just how much in that way it was. I mean, there was, you know, there was no, the pill wasn't, didn't really come out until the mid-60s, hence all the pregnancies, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, and then, you know, it was a time before there were any sort of rehab clinics or, uh, you know, drug therapists or any of that sort of incredible support that we have now. So I, I think, you know, Brian's life might have been very different had he lived later. But at the same time, they were trailblazers. They were the sort of first of these bands. They were... It was also before the music industry was organized. So there weren't really all these, you know, managers. And it was kind of a free-for-all, uh, which was both amazing. You know, when you look at the footage of the concerts, they're really kind of a riot. There was a kind of anarchy about the whole thing, which you forget about because now you go to a concert, it's also securities in place and you know, it's all very organized. Then it was the Wild West. People would rip up the seats and throw them onto the stage. They would, you know, ambush the the stage and rip the curtains down. It was kind of an excuse for a just a free-for-all. And uh, you, you don't see anything like that now. So uh, I found all that material really quite astonishing. Um, you know, those those early early concerts it's kind of amazing you know people in the band didn't get sort of seriously physically hurt because there was so much you know in the, that footage of you know Mick Jagger just with people jumping all over him in the middle of a performance and then the, the the bouncers throwing people off the stage back into the crowd was just uh, astonishing material really Although the uh, the Rolling Stones parted ways with Brian partially because of musical differences, um, what, in your opinion, did Brian leave 
them with that attributed to their ongoing and pretty much never-ending success? Well, I think his love of the blues, which was obviously shared by the other uh, Stones, he, I think, you know, enjoyed the more, the rougher side of the blues, um, the the less commercial in a way. And um, certainly in those early songs, you know, he brought a kind of very, original instrumentation you know like in something like paint it black or ruby tuesday you know he brings a a rawness to the music which i think they then sort of incorporated into their playing and he also was by far the most outrageous in terms of not only his lifestyle uh with all the girlfriends and stuff but he was the first who really kind of explored androgyny, uh, you know, which is really what Mick became famous for. But Brian was the first to sort of wear makeup and mascara and dress in women's women's clothes. And, you know, he was always borrowing uh, his girlfriend's clothes um, and you, wearing them on stage. And that was, you know, the first first of that kind. And I think the Stones always kept that edginess, you know, and I think a lot of it really came initially from Brian. Yes, he gave them the springboard um, for their enduring success, as I mentioned. And I'm kind of curious uh, on that note, were you able to time the release of this documentary with Hackney Diamonds or was that just a happy accident? I think there was a happy accident. I mean, the the less happy accident was that the film took an astonishingly long time to make. So ah. it was, it was, yeah, because getting all that archive, which hadn't been seen before, was just terribly, terribly difficult. You know, it sort of really took about two and a half years of scurrying around you know, knocking on people's doors, l- looking at footage in people's garages and all the rest of it to try and find material that hadn't, because people obviously weren't filming very much in the 60s. So it was that was kind of the biggest challenge of making the film in a way. So it was a very, very long process. And uh, I think it was a very happy accident that um, this this rather brilliant, albums come out at the same time as the film yes everyone's talking about the rolling stones now and i um, have friends who organized a big group event to go see uh the stones and brian jones and people are absolutely loving it and i'm kind of wondering as my last question here what do you hope people will take away with them after watching the stones and brian jones brian was a very complex character he he had a kind of genius. He had a wonderful creativity. And at the same time, he was pretty flawed. You know, there was Bill talks about him being charming and sweet, but he also had a very cruel side to him. And I think what I tried to do while making the film was not to judge Brian too harshly uh, and to try and understand what it was that kind of made him the way he was and and to you know obviously celebrate his the brilliance that he had and to 
kind of understand that you know this was a young guy he you know he died at 27 uh he was forging a new way that other people hadn't done before and he, you know he he had a lot of faults too but there was there's still something wonderful to celebrate i think about him and that incredible period of time in the 60s that gave away to such incredible original creativity, which, you know, hasn't really been repeated since. You're right. Well, thank you, Nick. I really appreciate your time. And thank you for making such a wonderful film for us music fans to enjoy. Been very nice talking to you. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series, too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L-Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. Bye.